Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer Dr. Kelly Jones. And we are thrilled to announce that today's episode is an interview with our special guest, Jocelyn Jackson. Known for her poetic Southern Gothic style, Jocelyn Jackson is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling and award-winning author of nine novels. Her audiobook narration work has been nominated for the Audi Award and won multiple earphone awards. She lives in Decatur, Georgia, and also serves on the board of Reforming Arts, a nonprofit that provides education in prison and reentry programs. Jocelyn has taught creative writing, composition, and literature inside Georgia's maximum security facility for women which is so cool she is so cool and I'm just I have to have like a fangirl moment because Jocelyn Jackson is one of my favorite writers of all times and I am just beside myself with happiness right now she is a delight I mean she has always been a delight she and I met many years ago and I have loved her from the first moment and after having this conversation I didn't think it was possible but I love her even more Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And her style and her voice are so powerful. Yeah. Which is perfect for how story works. Yes. Because story is power. And we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. All right. So here we are with the unbelievably talented uh, Ms. Jocelyn Jackson. Jocelyn, thank you so much for joining us for How Story Works Conversations. We're so excited to talk to you today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, so uh, we already gave a list of uh, your many accomplishments and everything that you've done uh, at the top of the show. But I was going to open with how Joss and I actually met, which I had written a book that I had no business writing because I have never so much as been to Georgia, let alone like, you know, actually know anything about it. And Kelly is actually <laughs> from Georgia. So um, so you, you Southern girls were very, very patient with this book. But I wrote this book, X and the Single Girl, took place in Georgia. And uh, Joss and I were both being published by uh, Warner Books Hachette now um, and and they got us in touch and they gave it to Jocelyn and Jocelyn so generously gave me a blurb for that book <laughs> thank you so much Jocelyn oh it's really good so you know you have such a great sense of humor and it's always fast paced it's a page turner so I loved it oh you're so sweet thank you but they told me that you were um, you were blurbing this book and you had were just you had like your first book, Gods in Alabama, was coming out and I got a hold of it. And this is I'm going to tell you, everybody, this is when I fell in love with Jocelyn Jackson was that opening line. There are gods in Alabama, Jack Daniels, high school quarterbacks, trucks, big tits and also Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The second I read that, I completely fell in love with Jocelyn Jackson and have been ever since. Um, and it's it's so much fun to have you here uh, with us today. And I know that Kelly has been a huge fan for a really long time. Kelly, didn't you go to like a, a Joss event at one point? I did. Um, so I went to the Decatur Book Festival. This oh, gotta be. that's yeah. my favorite. Yes. I live in so Decatur. Great. I live in Decatur. So yeah. it is my hometown book festival. So when you say that, yeah, I mean, it's like when Decatur Book Fest begins to approach, I go around the house singing like, it's the most wonderful time. <laughs> like I, it's my favorite weekend in the whole year. It's such a great book festival. And uh, and you were there, you were talking about the girl who stopped swimming. And you were talking about the how theater work influences your writing and the quilting. And then there were teeth in the quilt. And I was like, yeah, I have to teeth. read. I have human to read this woman. Teeth. Oh, my God. And the book was so good. Um, and oh, then I went you. back to Gods in Alabama as well. And that first line I remember thinking, that is the most true opening line I've ever read about the South in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, born and raised, just saying. Well, they're wonderful books, Joss. And um, and so now, like, knowing that we were going to be talking to you, I caught up. I've been rereading, you know, the books. I've caught up on some of the books that um, that uh, that I haven't hadn't gotten to yet. And I have to say, like, I'm really interested in this kind of lovely darkness that you have sort of weaving into the books. I mean, let's face it. Gods in Alabama, you know, came out swinging. 
with a with a bottle of whiskey, right? You know, <laughs> literally, um, literally with a bottle of whiskey, right? It's I such, actually such think it's drink. tequila. She murders it's them with tequila. a bottle of tequila, but it's yeah, I mean, tequila. really, honestly, it should have been whiskey. I mean, I am Irish; it should have been whiskey, but all she had on hand was tequila. You know, Southern women make do. That's exactly. Right. You make it work, right? You, you work with what you got. And I like that. Um, such great, great books. They're so they're fun. They're funny. You have these wonderfully complicated, um, really interesting heroines. Um, and I love the way that you pulled in Rosemary Lolly from Backseat Saints into Backseat Saints from Gods in Alabama into Backseat Saints. And as I was reading Backseat Saints, I was like, wait a minute, because it had been a while since I've read Gods in Alabama. <laughs> and you have the same scenes from Rose May's perspective. It was yeah, beautiful. That was that was a very complicated thing to do. So Gods in Alabama and Backseat Saints take place over the same four days. Yeah. And in Gods in Alabama, there are three scenes that Rose May Lolly is in. And it was several books after Gods in Alabama. And I loved her. Like I was so interested yeah. in Rosemary Lolly. But it was it was several books and several years later, I literally woke up in the middle of the night, shook my husband awake, and I said, Honey, Rosemary Lolly and Gods in Alabama was lying the whole time and I know <laughs> what she was doing. <laughs> And so I literally like dr started drawing a time chart for like, it was this huge like a sheet of butcher paper that ran the length of my office with the timeline because all three scenes that Rose May mm -hmm. is in and God's are in Backseat Saints. Yes. The dialogue is word for word the same and the scenes they're both lying in every in both in all three of those scenes yeah they're every word they say is a lie so the scenes are entirely different and yet i didn't change a word of dialogue or the timeline oh, it is wow. so brilliant when i had that realization because i read gods in alabama the first time like 15 years ago when it came out you know um yeah. and then i read backseat saints and i was like now wait a minute now wait a minute <laughs> I remember this. I remember calling up Kelly and I was like, oh, my God, Backseat Saints overlaps with Gods in Alabama. And I had this whole realization. She was like, oh, my God. Um, it was and so they incredible. And don't, they don't spoil for each other because no? they run over the exact same timeline. So where one ends is pretty much yeah. where the other ends. And they're not together. And right. So you can read them in either order. And they don't spoil for each other. And you could read one and never read the other. But I do yeah. think it's kind of fun to read them back to back because... They're such different books, and yet they have oh. these three touchstones that line up perfectly. Yeah. I'm proud of that. That was a, that was, it was like you know, Arlene is such a game player, and there's mm -hmm. so many. I usually I love games. Like a lot of my books have games in them. Yeah. And for me, structuring those two novels to sync up in that way, like it was a huge game. Like, can I do this? Can I make these stories? each be their own thing where I'm equally proud of each of them and they could totally stand alone without the other. But if you read them together, it's a, it makes it a whole experience like that for me, it was a game. Oh, it was wonderful. And you did such a great job and it is, they don't spoil each other because they're both lying. So like, <laughs> what is actually happening, you know, to either one of them is, is a complete lie for both of them. So I absolutely love that. But I was going to ask you that question. Did you know when you wrote Gods in Alabama that you were going to save this space for Rosemary Lolly or did no. it just come to you and you just answered no. that? Yeah. No. And it's, it's a thing, like, I've always been this kind of writer who's been like, I will never write a sequel because if you get all the way through one of my books mm -hmm. without being shot in the face or beaten to death with a tequila bottle, like you deserve to be left alone, right? Like <laughs> you deserve, cause I, I do like, I'm, I'm not like a, let's make everything be tidy and have a super cheerful end, but I do sure. end in the breath. I do end in hope. Mm -hmm. I do try to bring my main characters to some kind of peace with the main conflict so, and, and I feel like if you make it all the way through and nobody, you know, I have a pretty high body count. And if you get to the end, you know, you should be left, you've earned the right to just be left, the, left alone. So, but then like several times with first with um, Rosemary Lolly and um, Arlene and then second with um, someone else's love story and the opposite of everyone, I've had mm -hmm. a secondary character becomes so loud in my head that she deserved her own book. And because mm -hmm. Rosemary was the first person that 
that happened with. I don't think I recognized it. But when I wrote, and, and this is the same experience with Gods in Alabama. When I wrote someone else's love story, there was this tri-racial sexual goddess, divorce lawyer, mighty mm-hmm. goddess character called Paula Voss. Mm-hmm. And, and she's so funny. Every line, every line of Paula's dialogue, I would just sit in my chair and laugh until I cried. And she was so present that every time I would write a scene with Paula in it, the scene that needed to be four or five pages would be like 20 or 30 pages. And I would be like, <laughs> Oh, this is Rosemary Part Two. Paula's going to get her own book. So I started mm-hmm. when I would clean those scenes out and just pick like the five best Paula lines. I would mm-hmm. just put everything in a file because I knew, <laughs> I knew Paula would get her own book. And sure enough, the and then I didn't wait three or four books. I was like, Paula's going to get her own book, so I'm I know that. So I'm just going to go ahead and listen to her now. So I did learn, and I've still never written a sequel like. The opposite of everyone does not spoil for someone else's love story. Someone else's mm-hmm. love story doesn't spoil for the opposite of everyone. Like that, they they don't run concurrently, but they're very different storylines out of different time periods. So you mm-hmm. can read them in either order and they'll set you up for the other book, but they won't spoil. I love that. I think that's so fantastic. Um, one of the things that we talk about a lot or that I talk about in, in How Story Works is I talk about the difference between like craft and magic. Like craft is the structure and the conflict and the, you know, sequence of the events, like all of these kinds of things that you put together, like the rules that you can ba- put your back up against. And then there's the sense of magic, like the just going into something that ha- like Rosemary Lolly just popping up and just being, you know, this thing that you needed her to be so that you could build this whole book on her. Um, and so I'm curious where you work more from. I find that um, that writers who are plotters tend to really kind of start from a, a craft perspective. And then writers who are pantsers and just kind of make it up as they go along tend to work from this, this very amorphous, magical space where things just sort of happen and you sort of follow it where it goes. I'm curious which kind of writer you are, although I think I might know. Oh, I want you to guess. I'm not going to tell you. Tell me. You guess. <laughs> I would guess that you start with magic. I start and end with magic. I have mm-hmm. absolutely no plan ever. <laughs> like, it's very shocking to me that I understood enough to recognize that Paula was going to get her own book. Like, I don't mm-hmm. learn. <laughs> it's magic every time. And, like, the stupid, the really genuinely stupid thing about that is, like, it's the same process for every book, but experientially, it's exactly the same. So, mm-hmm. and everyone's tired of me because, you know, my next book that, that comes out will be my 10th book published and my 12th novel I've completed. Mm-hmm. So my dearest friends and my husband, like, I'll call them sobbing, like, I, I'm quitting this job. I can't write a novel. I don't even understand how this is supposed to work. And they're like, are you turth? two-thirds of the way through right. because this is what you do at two-thirds of the way through and it's not cute anymore. <laughs> but to me, it feels absolutely real every time. And I've done it yes. so many times now that two-thirds of the way through when I realize I'll never be able to write this novel and I should just quit and I don't even understand how I ever wrote it. Like I can recognize like uh-huh. empirically there is 12 years of evidence that that's absolutely not true, but it feels so real. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why I started doing this. That's why I started studying story because I had sold one book and in a two book contract and I was like, oh, they're going to make me do this again. And I don't know <laughs> how I did it the first time. So I became obsessed with stories to try to like figure out how they work. And that's my whole thing now. <laughs> like this is where I spend all of my time trying to understand it because it is such a weird mix of like craft and magic and how you pull all that together. And I myself am a magical pantser. Where I just yeah. go in and like Total start pulling magic. stuff out of the sky. Yeah, pull stuff out of the sky and however it is. And it, I find it terrifying. So you are way braver than me because you kept going and I was like, no, I'm going to figure this. I'm going to unlock this mystery. I mean, I'm still working is on it, it brave or is it like, what is the definition of insanity? Like you do the same, same thing. thing. I didn't expect a different result. <laughs> like by now, I really should. But then there's also this thing that because it is so magic, it's like, if I change this process, will these people who drive me stop showing up? 
Yes. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So I yeah. don't want to, like, you don't want to kill the animal. Like, I've got this animal inside me that makes mm-hmm. me tell stories. Mm-hmm. And it is a savage, vicious, wild, terrible animal that I can't mm-hmm. control or ride. It does what it wants to do. And, and yet I love it. And sometimes it yeah. won't show up and sometimes it will. <laughs> and like, part of me is like, I would really like to get you on like a vegan diet and put you in a harness <laughs> and get your crap together. But at the same time, like it's a wild animal. Like what if you kill it and it can't do it anymore? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that is a, is a really kind of scary thing for a writer is like what happens if you kind of look if you look too deep, like they have that thing, look into the abyss and the abyss looks back into you. Like what if you look yeah. into this thing and then suddenly you lose that that connection with the magic. So it is it's very scary. And then there are well, other it's writers also who personal, like personal though. Like yeah. it's not just that the abyss looks back, it's that the abyss has teeth because right. <laughs> Because, I mean, I understand that I could probably, uh, this is a, this is bad and wrong to say, and I don't want anyone to take this as advice and absolutely no one should do this. And let me start at the very beginning and say, my God, go to therapy. Um, But I like what I do instead of therapy is I just shove everything down into this horrible swamp at the pit of me Mm -hmm. and it just soups up into this disgusting craziness soup and then a novel grows out of it and (laughs) I I mean I don't even understand what I'm writing about like I will have Mm -hmm. this idea or this person and it's so intense to me and I I have to write this story and I have to let this person have a voice and I'm two-thirds of the way through the book and I'm like oh I see what you're processing now (laughs) wouldn't that have made this better if you'd just gone to therapy like four times instead of spending a year (laughs) turning all this lunacy into it yeah no but I love that and I love that I love the darkness that's inside your novels because there is something to that that I think that speaks to a very specific feminine experience yeah (laughs) which which I think a lot of us can really identify with and it's kind of nice when she kills him with a tequila bottle because you know I've had that fantasy once or twice um so they all sister (laughs) haven't we all kick him in the kudzu and move on with your day yeah um so I find that really um you know I'm I'm, I'm like I I don't want you to suffer at all but I mean come on I'm a very privileged person and my suffering is 90% of my own making and I get books that I'm really proud of and I love out of it so you know let's not feel too sorry for me I could like just go on medication and it would all be fine but instead you know I don't do that so and I you know that's that's a choice I make because Mm -hmm. this is how like, I think everybody has their methodologies for processing sure. their trauma and their life. Mm-hmm. And this is my methodology. And yeah. it is very feminist. I'm a very, I'm a very female centric writer. My, mm-hmm. my default is to go to a female voice. I think I've written two male narrators now. Um, they were male narrators who appeared in a book where there was also at least one female narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a big criticism of my work that I hear over and over again in um, reviews that aren't quite getting what I'm doing is like, mm-hmm. well, her male characters seem to exist more as foils who light up the lives of the female characters. And I'm like, oh, you don't say. Did you hear that way? Sort of like every female character for the last 300 years. Like, yes, I'm using male experience to light up female experience. And I'm Mm -hmm. unapologetic about that. And it's deliberate. But it's also like you talk about that darkness. Like as I get older, right, and as I understand Mm -hmm. the world more, and as mortality moves from being like this cute, little concept to this thing like it's not out sitting at the dinner table staring at me yet but it's under the bed like I can see the eyes shining (laughs) as all that stuff happens like I'm getting darker I I just Uh went through a whole genre change that was just as magic and unconscious as everything else I've ever done yeah, well, I mean, it has to evolve, right? You know, yeah. um, and you were talking about the games that you play and then Never Have I Ever, right? Which I think is coming out in paperback soon, isn't it? Yes, it is coming out in paperback soon. Very exciting. Excited. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but Never Have I Ever opens with kind of a very dark game. Yes. So mm-hmm. it's, I mean, it's a drinking game. Did I mention I'm Irish? <laughs> <laughs> It's a drinking game that, you know, you 
it, the, the whole idea of it is if you're winning, you're sober, right? Like mm-hmm. the idea is to say things that make other people drink and begin to disclose too many things about themselves while you stay sober and, and peel everybody's right. secrets out of them. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's psychological suspense. It's domestic noir for sure. Mm-hmm. And I've always written like Southern fiction or women's fiction before this book, but it's mm-hmm. not like I thought, I'm going to change genres now. I just started writing the book. I started writing the book I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And about three chapters in, I was like, oh, crap. You're This is crime fiction. This is psychological suspense. This is domestic noir. You're changing genres. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But with no... I love that. Yeah. It, it was a very magical, instinctual thing that happened. So, you know, I wish I was more... <sighs> Not that way, but that's the way I am. <laughs> well, what I love about your books is like, and you do change genre a little bit. And I'm I'm a genre bender. Like I don't I don't like to have to stick to anything. And I love books that blend genres. But your voice is still always you. Like I feel like someone could give me a paragraph of anything you've written, and I would be like, yes, that's Jocelyn Jackson. It's so distinctive to you. That's honestly the nicest thing you could say to me. I consider myself a voice writer, and I I love that. I hope. I mean, that's my hope. So thanks. Let's hug, <laughs> except from six feet away. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But um, I'm really curious how you. Like, I don't want to say how did you find your voice or develop your voice, but how do you tap into it? Or like, what is, what is that experience? No, I mean, it's actually easier to answer how I found it. I mean, the answer is theater. Like I, I started out as a playwright and an actor in that order. Like I was a playwright Mm -hmm. who also did a lot of acting Mm -hmm. and it's weird when I try to write plays, I'm not that great to be honest. I've had some plays produced and they were funny and they were fine, but they felt like kind of funny was where it ended, where I think I do more with my novels. Um, they they came from like the front of my brain with all the gray matter and the thinking and it's, it is a process I understand and it is meticulous and it is not magic-based but rules-based. Whereas acting for me seemed to come from like the occipital lobe and be very instinctive and about the deliberate practice of empathy. And that's where novels come from for me too. It's the, it's this, it's like this thing I can access in the very, like it's, it's the part of my brain that's really near the spine. So there's a lot of animal stuff in there as opposed to parsing and thinking and questioning. It's a very instinctive thing. And like my biggest job in order to Find that voice that is my essential self right right near at the base of my brain is, is about getting all that gray matter out of the way and letting what needs to happen in terms of magic happen. Wow. Oh, I love that. Um, one of the things that I loved, too, um, in Backseat Saints, and I know that Kelly, Kelly and I talked about this quite a bit, um, is the way that you incorporated um, the tarot yes. right into that. Yeah, I mean, that's me and games again, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I guess I think I'm always interested in games. I think human beings are, are game players. And 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 to me, tarot, I, I'm not a very mystical person. I'm a pragmatist. I know it sounds like, oh, woo-woo, it's all magic. But at the same time, I'm very pragmatic and not mm-hmm. mystical. So, I mean, I understand that I am framing my psychology – as as magic because I'm not trying to learn it or understand it. I'm just trying to write it. Like even when I talk in terms of magic or an animal, I understand that there is a a psychological scientific basis for that. So I'm I'm really pragmatic. So I do look at like tarot cards and stuff as a game. It's a game you play that can be really valuable in terms of psychology. Like a tarot card reading is really more about therapy than it is about mm-hmm. magic. And I think writing mm-hmm. a book is really more about therapy than it is about magic. But experientially, it feels like magic. Well, really, it's just a game you're playing to try and understand yourself and the world you live in. Like stories, how I understand the world and the mm-hmm. way I access story feels magic. But if I were to examine it close enough, you know, I would know it's not. well I love the um like the symbolism you know or that 
I don't even know that I would necessarily like a lot of the things in in your work. They feel like symbolism to me and that they have this like really important sense of meaning to them. You know, like yeah. the Jack Daniels bottle, you know, like even things like that. Like, yeah, it just it feels so symbolic, but not in the in the kind of like hoity toity, like, oh, let me just unpack this metaphor for you. Here. But rather, <laughs> yeah. rather this very powerful, very deep kind of almost primal, like feminine space. When I read your books, you, it's weird, you know. I gotta say, you make me feel like a woman, Joss. You know, like it's. <laughs> I I read these books and I feel like this connection with this very deep feminine experience that I I find the the different things that happen in your books the different like from the car, you know that yeah. uh, Rose so I drives. Talk about, like I, yeah. I actually want to talk about this importantly, like what you're saying right now. I want to talk about that in terms of never have I ever really quick because, you know, uh, never have I ever. So if, if you haven't read never have I ever yet, you can actually go to hell for that. It's in Leviticus. So you should get it right now. But um, (laughs) I I just want to give you like a 30 second. What's this book about? And then I want to talk about like what I set out to do in terms of me being a feminist writer and a woman centric Mm -hmm. writer. Okay. So there's this woman named Amy way who like, You know, I always say if you're trying to figure out some other way to cook chicken breasts and work in like time with your kids and walking the dog, like that's a really terrible novel. Like it's a really, it's a really good life. Like it's a wonderful, Mm -hmm. privileged, amazing life. It's a terrible novel. But Mm -hmm. Amy has that life for almost one and a half pages. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. And you know, she's just this every woman. She runs her neighborhood book club. She loves her job mm-hmm. as a dive instructor. She loves her husband. She actually miraculously gets along with her teenage stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. She has a new baby that she's crazy about with her husband. And that all changes when Angelica Rue shows up to her neighborhood book club. And Rue is not like, they're all the kind of people, you know, they have their discount designer handbags three years late from TJ Maxx. Like I have that handbag and that's what they bring to book club, you know, and they, they're reading, you know, the house of mirth and they're all like adjuncts and administrators and professors and librarians. It's a little university town. And Rue seems like this kind of person who's like, she would know how to make pate from scratch. She like, (laughs) she's probably had sex in a moving vehicle, maybe on the way to book club. (laughs) So she's very exotic to them. And she derails book club. She gets everybody playing this drinking game. Never have I ever, everybody gets drunk. Nobody's talking about House of Mirth. And Amy at first is like, like, you know, your, your, your life, like you love your baby, but if like every day with the baby is the same day. It's a great day, but it's the same day. Mm -hmm. So she's a little excited at first, except that very quickly it turns on her and she comes to understand that Rue has not moved into the neighborhood by chance. She hasn't joined book club by chance. She hasn't started this game by chance. It's aimed at Amy. When she's getting everybody to reveal their secrets, she already knows what Amy did what Mm -hmm. Amy's real name is and she's Mm -hmm. come to make Amy pay. So that's like the jumping off point for this. And for me, it was like, just to be brutally honest here, here's where the genre change came in and everything came in. Um, My father was dying. My father, who I am, who I was and still am incredibly close with. He was in hospice care. I was half the time living at my mother's house to look at the kind of Southern things I always write about, like race relations and things like that. I, I just didn't, I couldn't, I, I need, I couldn't do it. Like the book wasn't coming out that way. I needed to be really present with my father. And for me, like my biggest pleasure reads are suspense crime fiction mm-hmm. like that's my pl- and this book started just coming out of me and the way I came to understand it was my book was that like in, in instead of like southern themes that I've dealt with for nine novels this was a very universal theme which is exactly what you're talking about when you mm-hmm. look into the abyss the abyss looks back how can you like it's good versus evil. How do you fight that which is evil without becoming evil? Like it's these really classic crime fiction themes, period. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at 
like all of these classic examples of that novel, it's always male. It's always mm-hmm. male. Think about mm-hmm. that story. You've read that story before of how do you fight evil without becoming evil? Well, mm-hmm. evil has always just killed your wife, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. And so I started to think like, okay, I'm going to write the kind of book that I use to relax instead of reading it. I'm going to be mm-hmm. writing it now instead of Southern mm-hmm. fiction. And when I'm doing that, though, it's going to still be my book because I'm going to take this very classic theme that's been explored from here to Christmas in male terms and say, how is that different if we run it through female sensibility, first of all, and second of all, if we run it through the lens of motherhood, which is Mm -hmm. always, always something I write about is motherhood. So that felt really familiar, too. And I just thought, you know, if... If I, if I look at this through a strictly female lens, does it change that classic story? And you know what? Mm-hmm. It super does. <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. I love, uh, well, you know, getting back to this whole symbolism thing, right? Because Amy's a diver. Yes. Right. So we have the water, which is a classic feminine, you know, symbol, but also going deep, deep down into the darkness of the water. And the truth lies there in that darkness in the water. So I found her as a diver such an interesting idea because, you know, it's not the typical kind of job. Thank you for getting that. So if you look at the ocean as this kind of metaphor that it's been classically used as, you know, Mm -hmm. like if you. If you've ever been on a boat and dropped your sunglasses, baby, you are not getting the sunglasses right. back. Right. <laughs> it's getting claimed. The ocean claimed. keeps mm-hmm. its secrets, and yet yes. we have this narrator who owns it. Like, yeah. it's her natural element. She can live on the surface with the people, and she can also go down into these dark places where all her lies live. Yeah. And air breathers cannot follow her. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And and that was a big question for me, too, is, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I call myself a redemption-obsessed novelist. Mm-hmm. How we... Yes how grace works, how we find forgiveness, how we forgive ourselves or whatever. That's all through every single one of my novels in either tiny threads or it's the whole spine of the thing. And it's like in this novel, I was interested in who owns that forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. Like, do you get to forgive yourself? Does society have to forgive you? Does the person you've wronged have to forgive you? Does a God have to forgive you? Mm -hmm. Who owns grace and how is grace deployed? And I have this running metaphor where, People live above the water and they hide what they need to under the water. And I have this narrator who can move back and forth at will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, I loved that. Super fun. One of the things that I think first drew me in, I mean, other than your, your, you know, that voice is just so poetic and beautiful. But growing up in Georgia, one of my sensibilities is the way Southern women, I mean, not to speak too categorically, but in my experience, are secret keepers or oh, yeah. the, the stories of women are quiet and tucked down and they're not brought detriment. out. Yes, to our exactly. Exactly. And, and that just hit home with me so much in all of your books because it takes a while, right, to get to know that narrator and for some of those secrets to come out. And because we're not going to bring them out with the fine company China, you know, it, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, a, a very hidden process. You know, that's a, that's another thing. Like we talk about these things that I'm criticized for, like the, you know, that my male characters light up female lives. Oh, you don't say. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times people will say this started really slow, but I stuck with it. And then, oh my God. And then the payoff uh-huh. was, and I think that, that that's less true in Never Have I Ever. It, that's, that has a, because of genre, it has a more immediate narrative drive, but mm-hmm. even even with that book, I think it's definitely true that I don't show my whole hand at once. And I sort of rely on the fact that the voice is engaging and the humor to carry you through because like if you invest in one of my books and you give it the time and you just enjoy the voice and go with it, like all those little throwaway sentences, everything comes back, everything pays off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and and like we were talking about, you know, with the opposite of everyone and somebody else's love story. The the character, like Paula, and I love Paula Voss. Me too. But when when she's a side character, you know, in somebody else's story, the way we see her 
is so different than the way we see her in her own book. And like that, to me, that inner landscape, you know, that that deep, there's there's an intimacy in the way that you write and in the way you engage with those characters. And oh, I just, I love that so much. But for me, it just feels like home, you know? Oh, and so I don't, I don't you. know how much of that is, is from being Southern and how much of that is just style. But are you drawn to stories like that? Have you always written that way? Yes. Uh, but I, I honestly, once again, I will point back to theater for that. Because mm. like, if you look at someone else's love story, we see Paula acting on her own. And then we see Paula through the lens of there's two narrators in someone else's love story, Shandy, a young, a very young woman, and William, her best friend, who is an, a person on the spectrum, an autistic man who's a 35-year-old geneticist. And he and Paula have been friends since they were children, and Shandy intersects with William. And Paula is William's favorite person on the planet, and Shandy hates Paula. So we see three Paulas in that book. We see the Paula through the Shandy filter and we see Paula through the William filter. And then we empirically see what Paula says and does. And then in the opposite of everyone, Paula speaks for herself. And I like one of the things I'm really proud of is those are three entirely different things. How William sees Paula, how Shandy sees Paula, how Paula behaves, and how Paula sees herself. Mm -hmm. But if you look at all four of those things, it's all Paula. Like, And I think that's really how we are as human beings. Like, I think that is, that is something I do well. I'm, I'm very truthful about that. Like, every character that I write, I try to inhabit that character – and then as an actor, I inhabit the character seeing that character and interpret that character in really kind ways. If I love that character, the way we're so, you know, we kindly interpret the actions of people we love mm -hmm. and we unkindly interpret the actions of people <laughs> we hate. So you see Paula do the same thing and you see Shandy respond to it in one way and explain her motivations in one way that Shandy's ascribing to her. And you see William ascribing wholly different motivations. And then when you finally get to meet Paula, neither one of them are right. One of them is being much too hard on her and one of them is being much too forgiving of her. And, and then Paula herself is probably biased by her own point of view and like for me as an actor like trying to inhabit all of those people they're all whole and real to me and I can sort of stand outside of that as a writer and yet see them through the lens of other characters to me that's the thing that's the gift theater gave me I think it's the thing I'm proudest of in my work I love it that's beautiful that is, it's really wonderful. I love also getting back to this like feminine reclaiming of this narrative space, right? Which does tend to be like a male dominated space or has been traditionally, right? Yeah, um, not necessarily idea... anymore. I mean, really, yeah. we are we are hearing we are hearing women's voices better now. I think that. And we're hearing the voices of people of color better now. I mm -hmm. think it's it's especially challenging if you're a woman of color. It's yeah, it, it's mm -hmm. not perfect, but it is better. It's mm -hmm. it's not perfect. It's not even great, but it's better. It is getting better because we're getting more of these stories that come from you know so many more perspectives. I absolutely love the way that you have taken noir, which is a classically male. Yeah, story, so right? Classically male genre, and you've made it domestic noir for Never Have I Ever. Um, I love that that concept. And, you know, having been thinking a lot about genre lately, as I've been trying to work with a, a friend who's trying to, like, really define it, because it is used, genre is, is a function of marketing, right? You know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, like, when you're talking about genre with regard to the craft of storytelling, um, you know, where I'm, I'm still figuring this out. I, don't, I haven't got it locked down yet. But, like, where genre works as a function of storytelling and where it works as a function of marketing, it's all, like, mashed in together to the point where it's really hard to separate that out. And I, I would also add you have to consider where marketing is used as a tool to shut certain people up. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so this domestic noir idea, you know, um, I absolutely love that because it's it's taking something that has been traditionally expressed through a male lens and male experience, typically white male white lens male and male lens experience. experience. And, uh, with and the exception now, of maybe think... Walter Mosley and Easy Rollins. Oh, God, but, yeah. I love Easy. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? Yeah, but I mean, typically a white male lens, you know, and then yeah. you're and, and, and it is I mean, a lot of noir is about, you know, the essence of the the good man corrupted, you know, trying to save like was once you're corrupted, you're corrupted. And that's it, you know, um, whereas I, when you have these discussions of redemption. You know, especially in a story like domestic noir, you've got this feminine take on noir. We have her going down deep into the water. And then we talk about pulling up redemption from that dark space. You know, it's it's kind of taking noir and being like, hell no, baby, I got a new way of looking at it. I absolutely love the way that you do that. My question for you is... Is that something that happens as you go through the process? Or are you aware that you're doing that while you're writing? I usually discover these things while I'm in revision. And sometimes I discover these things years, years later when I'm rereading my work after it's been published and done. So I'm curious, when do you become conscious of these things that you're doing with these stories? So that varies. Um, mm -hmm. Usually, like the way I write is is terrible. I'm just going to take you through process really quick. <laughs> oh, yes. I was going to ask you. So yes, yeah, please. Yeah. Because this is, I mean, that, this is my whole thing. So, yeah, I mean, all of those things are connected. So my process is I write a first, I have an idea and it's always character centered. It always starts mm -hmm. with a person. Yep. And I'm at this point, I'm already cognizant that this person must in some way connect to one of the thematic themes that mm -hmm. drives me, mm -hmm. or I wouldn't be that interested in this person, right. <laughs> but I might not mm -hmm. know what that connection is yet. And that's okay. I write the first chapter. It's really bad, but it gives mm -hmm. me an idea for what happens next. Write the second chapter. That makes me realize that the first chapter is complete crap. So I throw it out. <laughs> write a new first chapter that makes me realize chapter two is complete crap. Throw out chapter two. Rewrite chapter two, which leads me into chapter three, which makes me realize all the things I got wrong in one and two. So it's this sort of stair-step uh -huh. thing that always sends me back to the beginning. I call it building the animal where yeah. until the foot is steady, I can't build an ankle. And then until the ankle is steady, I can't mm -hmm. build any. And at a certain point, I begin to understand what I'm doing. Like I'm like, oh, that's why I'm writing about this person. This connects to that. And sometimes that's halfway through the book. Usually it's two thirds of the way through the book. I suddenly mm -hmm. understand what I'm writing about and I understand how personal and revelatory it is. Yeah. And that's why I end up weeping and calling my friends and saying, I can't write yeah. this book. Like <laughs> about two thirds of the way through, I understand what I'm doing, which means a huge revision. And it changes uh -huh. the way I write the last third of the book because yeah. I'm now cognizant and craft comes into play and I'm no longer just surfing along on my high magic vibes mm -hmm. of, Ooh, we'll just, what does she want to do? I'll just listen <laughs> to my characters. Like it gets like, shit gets real. I have mm -hmm. to, start am i allowed to say shit gets real oh yes yeah. you can say oh yeah it's <laughs> real and i have to start like paying attention to craft elements and bringing in things cognizantly and crafting mm -hmm. theme that said all that subconscious crap like i'm thinking oh now i've got it but then like years later i might read the book and be like oh i didn't even notice that i was putting yeah. that in there you know like uh -huh. but but in the big picture stuff the stuff i'm doing intentionally by the time I get two-thirds of the way through the book, I can't avoid an understanding of it. Oh, God, I love that. I, I do, too. And that makes so much sense about why that's always that hard place. Horrible. Right, where you're mm -hmm. crying. So how do you push through that? First of all, we need a good word for that two-third, Mark. Um, <laughs> right. how, how do you push through that? What works for you? Well, I stop writing. I cry, and I eat a lot of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I call everyone that loves me and weep mm -hmm. and say I can't do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just stop yeah. until I find a spine and say, okay, this is revelatory and it is really self. It, it is, I mean, I see how this attaches to my own history and to my own belief system. And it's just a matter, for me, it's a matter of courage because that's one thing as a Southern woman is. Like, I have this horror that people won't think I'm real nice. Like, I'm uh -huh. real nice. Uh -huh. 
And when I see down to all the warty, horrible things I'm writing about, about human nature that are my own things because I'm human and flawed and selfish and terrible like everyone. Mm-hmm. And I've done terrible, terrible things in my life that I'm, I'm trying to like, I, I wouldn't say all my characters are good people or likable people, but I will say like most of them uh, have a moral center. Mm-hmm. and are trying to be good or at least better because I'm not interested in people who aren't interested in having a moral center or being better. I'm not interested right. in people who are just content to like be assholes. It's not, mm-hmm. I don't like those books or shows that are all about nihilism and about terrible people being terrible to worse people. Like that loses my right. interest so fast. Yeah, I need... I need someone who is trying to find a moral way to exist in this hideous, broken world. Even if it's a flawed way or even if they're going about it really in, in flawed mechanisms. Like, uh, that's, you know, that interests me. And whereas, like, nihilistic people who say nothing is meaningful, so I'm going to buy all the hand sanitizer and then sell it on eBay for 40 cents. Like, that kind of person doesn't interest me at all. Um, so... So that's where it's it's sort of – it's just this sort of thing where I have to come to terms with my own hideous imperfectness and my my failings as a human being and where I've failed to be generous or kind or forgiving enough and Mm -hmm. to widen my point of view. Like for me, writing is the conscientious practice of deliberate empathy – Ooh, oh, I, I love that. that. So at a certain point, like I see how personal it is and I see how biased I am in my own favor. And I have to rewrite the book <laughs> where I look at wherever I am in the book. And none of the characters are me, but honey, they're but all. they're all you. <laughs> they're oh, yeah. mine. They're not me, mm-hmm. but they're mine. And I am gentle with myself and I begin to see my own flaws and I take myself on and I bring myself to task. And that's really... That's really hard. Mm-hmm. Like nobody likes to be told they've made mistakes or are in the wrong. Nobody likes to be corrected. But I'm mm-hmm. wrong all the damn time. Yeah, and, we all are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so like to me what's important in the that, – that's two-thirds of the way through the book. I see that I'm really criticizing myself and where I've failed as a human mm-hmm. being to have enough empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. I love that. I, I think love so your great. definition of writing so much. That is yes. absolutely fantastic. Yes, I want to have that stitched on a or put on a T-shirt or something. Well, I mean, yes. that comes straight out of autism. I'm autistic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, I don't think I had a lot of natural empathy. I've had to deliberately learn it, which mm-hmm. women on the spectrum are very likely, you know, we're under so much pressure as women to be empathetic and to be yeah. social binders. And absolutely none of that came naturally to me as an autistic person. Wow. But, I, but I'm but i Southern, which means I'm raised to be passive aggressive. I'm raised to be willing to please. <laughs> uh-huh. These are the things that are expected of women. Be passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. Don't ask for what you want directly. Sugar it out of people and, mm-hmm. and be pleasing. And as an yeah. autistic person, that's like asking me to like fly. Yeah. And that pressure started societally and from church. And, you know, I had great parents and a great family, but it, I'm just saying it's in the water here in the South. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and for me, acting and writing was how I learned methodologies to do these things that were so expected of me. Wow. Oh that is so cool. That's I mean, amazing. that is really that because that gives you such a perspective on it. I know Kelly and I have had this discussion, right? Because, you know, I'm a northern girl. So my experience of things is just somewhat different. And I think one day, Kelly, I called you sweet and you were like, yep. uh-uh. <laughs> because the, because the, the pressure, the pressure that comes for Southern women, as Kelly has made me understand, to be sweet, like, quote unquote, sweet, um, can be really super destructive. Oh, my God. Those two words together? Mm-hmm. Right. I've been no like literally as a young girl, I can't count the number of times I've had a relative or an old man or lady at church pat my head and say, You be sweet now. Mm-hmm. You be sweet. Oh. Be That's sweet. Right. Yeah. That's oh right. Yeah. It's weaponized. I mean it's it is weaponized, weaponized sweetness. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and by by be sweet, they don't mean 
have compassion for those who are vulnerable and marginalized. That's not what they mean. (laughs) (laughs) They mean shut up and do what we tell you. That's right. They mean Uh shut up and do what pleases me in this moment because I have the the social currency and the power. And if you do try to empathize with those who are marginalized and who have been disempowered, you are not being sweet. That's the opposite Mm -hmm. of being sweet. That's right. right. Well, because you're being disruptive to the social system. And also right. that like all of these, especially the women, because we have generations of women doing that to other women, right? I had to be yes. sweet. I had to take it in the in the face all of these years. So now it is your turn to take it in the face from me, right? And so we're kind of perpetuating those yes. systems. And that's, I mean, you see that with anyone who is marginalized. Like yes. you see that where, where you know, the system, if, if you have learned how to subvert the system of white supremacy, white Mm -hmm. male supremacy, so that it's, you're seen as, you know, a good, I'm sorry, I hate to use this nomenclature because I think it's overused, but if you're a good Nazi, that system works for you. Mm -hmm. And and you're just betraying everybody else, you know, you have yours and it, it is safe. And I honestly, like, when you're extremely, extremely disenfranchised, mm-hmm. you really can't blame the person who does that. I, I mean, you can, but I think it's but awfully judgy. But who was disenfranchised judgy. in a system before you? Right. You know, who's just passing it who back has down nothing, to you. Right. And who doesn't mm-hmm. know anything else. Like, you know, I look at, yeah. like, you look at genital mutilation. Like, mm-hmm. I've never understood that this is women who do this to other women. Mm-hmm. But... Mm-hmm. They have no other context and it's not their fault. Yeah. They've had no power. And if they do this, it allows them to have those little corners of their lives where their lives become endurable. Like yeah. until you have lived in a space where, I, I don't know, I don't know if you guys know this. Do you know about reforming arts? I do. I do. And it's it's one of the things that I greatly greatly admire about you and your work eh, because it has nothing to do with me. so well but it's such important I mean it's so important it's it's so yeah. yeah I'll just for those people listening who don't know what this is um mm-hmm. I work with a nonprofit that brings higher education to women in who are incarcerated in the mm-hmm. state of Georgia or people who are incarcerated in the women's prisons in Georgia yes. and um they when you are so many of them, you know, I, I am, we, we also do reentry work with people who are coming out of prison after long, and I'm kind of moving into that now. So that that's kind of my focus right now. I'm very interested in working with the reentry people, but for the past seven years, I've been working um, with women who are incarcerated in Georgia's maximum security facility. Mm-hmm. And there's no agency there. And people are like, oh, they're so manipulative. And I'm like, what is, who do you think you are? Let mm-hmm. me take away every bit of agency you have. You will do, to, to create a tiny corner of your life where you can breathe mm-hmm. or have agency or feel okay, you will do anything. You will. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at people now who have all the freedom in the world and they can't stop smoking. They can't mm-hmm. stop way overeating Wendy's till it's killing them. Like those little pleasures that make your stressful, you know, over stress life bearable. What we will do for our little pleasures that make our lives feel worth living. And if you Mm -hmm. have no way to get that, you'll do anything. You'll do anything to have that place where you can breathe. Yeah. And, and so like it's, we create this situation where these people have, no room to breathe or exist and then blame them for not yeah. being happy and lighting up. <laughs> That's, That's like, classic. You- <laughs> That's what we've been doing for, yeah. you know, centuries yeah. and, and ages. And so to have that understanding of that. You know, that's a wonderful thing for you to be able to bring into these women's lives. That's amazing. Well, I, I mean, as a person who I think I've dedicated the last half century to trying to learn and understand empathy. Mm-hmm. This has been like working with reforming arts has really helped me with developing my empathy because if I can sit, if I can look, if I can read what they're writing, if I go in and teach a creative writing workshop where I, you know, I take my agency and mm-hmm. plop it down and say, okay, in this room, you can say whatever you want and you don't have to please me. It's not about, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's not about me at all. This is about me creating, I, I have this agency. So I'm just going to, all I'm going to do with that is make room. And what are you going to do in this room? And that's kind of the, like, that's sort of a mission statement in reforming arts. Like that comes mm-hmm. from our board and from our executive director, Wendy Ballou. Like she's like, let's go in there and create space and get out of the way, which is oh, very it. hard mm-hmm. to do as an artist yeah. and a creator and a person mm-hmm. who's like, no, let's make it this way. But it's like, no, if you're doing that, you're doing it wrong because mm-hmm. I can do that all day at home. In this environment, how can I create space to let you create? And and there are because there's no room for you there. Mm-hmm. And every human being deserves that room. If you can, if you can like I really believe in arts education. If you yeah. can mm-hmm. express your reality through song or poetry or theater and put it into an expression of art that is external to you, mm-hmm. you can then look at it. And you can then revise it. And that is powerful. Like to be able to put your story outside yourself and then look at it and understand it and revise it, that'll change your internal story. And and for me as an autist, to be able to put my story outside myself in a way like I'm not terribly in touch with my empathy or my emotions because Mm -hmm. I'm autistic – like to put it outside of me, that's why it takes me two thirds of a book to understand what I'm doing, right? But once I understand what I'm doing, it's really hard. But then I also know artistically as a process, then I have control over it. I've put it outside me, I've recognized it, and now I'm going to use craft to change it. Well, that works inside the prison system too, where if, if you have the space and the tools to put your story outside yourself, you can recognize it and then you can change it. Oh my God, Jess. Well, I have to say, we have taken up so much of your time today and I could go on and talk to you forever. That is wonderful. And I'm so glad to be able to kind of like finish this up. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I do have one more question for you. Um, One of the things that we do here at Chipperish Media is we always want to look to what is your favorite part. So my question for you is about your writing. What is your favorite part? Well, I hate writing, like most people. <laughs> um, I love revising. Mm-hmm. I hate writing. I love revising. Yes. I love having written. That always feels good. Yes. But mm-hmm. like my favorite part is when I is being read. Like I write mm-hmm. to be read. And I love it when I meet readers who have met these people who are so real and whole to me from multiple perspectives. And they have those their own perspectives it's like they've it's like we both know the same person and I think of the person this way and they think of the person in another way but it's equally valid because we both know this person except I made the person up (laughs) that to me is magic every time oh I love it I love it all right so now uh never have I ever we've got the paper book coming out when can people go and grab that um at the end of April April 28th April Awesome. Fantastic. fantastic. Well, thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, Jocelyn, how can people find you online? How can they find you and your work? Um, I'm all over, but my name is spelled weirdly. It's Jocelyn, <laughs> but it's J-O-S-H-I-L-Y-N, JocelynJackson.com, Jocelyn Jackson on Instagram, Jocelyn Jackson on the Twitter, Jocelyn Jackson on Facebook. And I really should get off social media and go revise, but I like social media, so I'm around. <laughs> Well, we love having you on it. And thank you again so much for coming and hanging out with us. I could talk to you honestly for hours, but I know that you're busy and you got to get going. So thanks so much. Yeah, it's yeah. Does busy mean have beer to drink because it is St. Patrick's? That's right. (laughs) That's right. I was using code. I was covering for (laughs) you, girl. That was bad. All right. Bye. I got your back. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jocelyn. All right, folks, that is it for our How Story Works conversation today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag How Story Works. How Story Works and everything Chipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to start and end with magic. 
Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the Chipperish Media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our April producers, Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Alice, Erica, Abigail, and Jonathan. And this week's special message for our power producers, writing is the conscientious practice of deliberate empathy. Citation, Jocelyn Jackson. Oh my God, she's so good. <laughs> Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a How Story Works producer. Other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or fight that which is evil without becoming evil. We will be back next time with our first Fix It episode, looking at the movie Hitch. Until then, to quote today's special guest, Jocelyn Jackson, if you can express your reality through song or poetry or theater and put it into an expression of art that is external to you, then you can look at it and you can revise it. And that is powerful. Powerful.